Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network, where you'll find your tennis news. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which could be the vehicle that takes you through life. And our mentors might provide that roadmap for your journey. On most Thursdays, I am blessed to be talking with mentors who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. Normally on the first Thursday of the month, it's Alan Fox. On the second Thursday, which of course is today, it's Chuck Creasy. Uh, Most of the time on the third Thursday, it's Dr. John Murray. And I do rotate on that fourth Thursday, and when we do have a fifth Thursday occasionally, uh, with uh, Coach Scott Williams, uh, Energy Coach uh, Linda LeClaire, Dr. Bryce Young, uh, Ashley Hobson. So uh, we've been blessed over the last three years. uh, Well, it's almost four years. In January, we'll be four years doing this. Uh, to have had college coaches and high school coaches, USTA officials, PTR and USPTA executive director, Florida tennis founder Jim Marks, all of them have been on the broadcast before. And, of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio and the Yellow Ball Network is that you can listen anytime you choose. So you can tune in just normally just by hitting the uh, logo there and listen, go in and listen to the broadcast. I very seldom catch uh, Chuck uh, Greasy on his uh, Wednesday's American Tennis broadcast live, uh, but uh, I can't remember the last time I missed one of the broadcasts. Uh, normally it's at 6 in the morning or 10 at night, but it's, that's the great thing about Block Talk Radio. And besides Chuck's radio uh, broadcast on Sunday, I mean on Wednesday, excuse me, on Sundays we now have Coach's Corner with Coach Randy Blumenthal on there. So uh, all your tennis news is right here uh, on the Yellow Ball Network. And I would like to thank the Yellow Ball CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our network. And if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, well, you're missing out on some useful information. And because I do believe Dr. King when he said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, each Thursday I will add my personal views on North American tennis, and naturally you will hear my biased views. Yes, I did say biased views. I am not a politician. I'm just an old coach. And uh, I do admit to having biases, uh, and uh, you will hear mine, and I respect yours, and will listen to yours. So um, the the tennis journey should be going through. My bias view is the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges, and who knows? Together we may wake up that sleeping giant called high school tennis. Besides our weekly conversation, the Elmaggy Willen. You will be able to continue reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I have previously expressed, if you disagree, please email me at coachdenise.fhstca at att.net. Excuse me. Who knows? You may read your views uh, in Florida Tennis or hear them on my Coach Denise Sharon Tennis Blessings broadcast. It would not be the first time that I broadcasted uh, opposing views. Remember, if somebody has taken the last issue of Florida Tennis from your pro shop, you all should be able to rest a little better now that the elections are over and we're not so uptight. But uh, you can always find the uh, issue of the magazine by going to www.floridatennis.com magazine.com and of course in between issues you can find Jim Marks and my articles as well as other information on Facebook at FL Tennis FL Tennis I do think I see our uh, mentor on today I'm sure all of you uh, know I don't have to uh, 
uh, I, I, I'm just, I like sometimes about who is Coach Greasy because I don't, we all know and respect him, and most of us uh, know uh, Coach in Tennis. Uh, but how many of you know that Coach in Tennis is only one of the six published books that he's uh, put out? Or that he's the one of his coach in ACC history. Uh, yeah, that's Coach Greasy. Also, he's a uh, four-time National Coach of the Year award winner. He's coached five Grand Slam champions. So you understand why I am uh, so blessed uh, to have him on in uh my daughter has me uh, involved in her 21-day gratitude uh, program, and uh, those my gratitude today, uh, quite frankly, was about um, having Coach uh, Greasy on the broadcast and the other uh, people on there. And I know uh, the last time I wrote an article about the people that uh, I felt were the people I looked up to. I had a lot of people say, how about this person and how about that person? And most of them, I've read their books and they're in my library and I love them. I don't mean to uh, miss anybody. But the one thing about our mentors, if you look up all of them that I mentioned before, you'll find that all of them have published books. And as a matter of fact, I was looking after I wrote this this morning uh, many of the other uh, people that we have on guests as uh, also written books. And as uh, those of you who know me uh, know that rather than giving out uh, awards to my high school teams, I gave out books. I, of course, I did write in those books and made suggestions uh, to them. But uh, uh, Bobby and I are big book uh, enthusiasts and uh, so I, I really do feel blessed to have our guest. Coach, I don't mean to interrupt your time because it's special. Um, I do, I would like to uh, do my commentary first, like I promised the people. I want to make sure they know I'm not too old for change. Change is necessary even for us old people. So, Coach, this is what I had. Today is actually the extension of last week, and uh, I I know some people said that you complain a lot, and as you get older, you do become more conscious of time, and I, I don't mean to complain, but those of you who listen to Coach Anisha and Tennis Blessings or read my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine have often heard my reasoning that when you break down the game of tennis, it's about time. Uh, my students uh, have heard me explain the importance of the first three games of the match. Since besides trying to take time away from their opponent or buying time with their shot selection, by the third game, I expect them that they should understand and know their opponent's strengths and weaknesses. And they should know if they need to make a change in their plan. Yes or not. Yes, I did have my players come up with a game plan before. I did believe in that. But life doesn't always go the way we planned it. So sometimes you might have to make a change. I must admit that each year, as each year passes, I respond. I agreed with Wilmington Timon introducing the final set tiebreaker to be at 12-12 in the fifth uh, set and well, fifth for the men, third for the women, and believing that the French and Australia Open, which soon follows the Wimbledon uh, outline of adopting a tiebreaker at 12-12, uh, rather than uh, the American way of 6-6. I respect the fact that the All England Club did not rush into a 6-6 tiebreaker in the 70s, but it was not really needed but did include coaching of time needed to develop players as well as the pros and marketers' position on playing and supporting tennis. It takes time to develop most things of value, and like other sports, it takes time to develop the athlete. Good coaching helps to generate outstanding tennis players in America, and the USTA gives a gold balls 
to successful tennis players. Gold balls are given to simulate the rewards of the accomplishment, not because it's shining, but because it represents value which can be measured. Yes, we still measure gold in our financial world uh, because we measure it against what it takes to mine the gold. Time may be the most precious commodity we have, but it because it is subjective, it might be harder to measure the value of it. Too often we are distracted by glitter and forget the, that gold value can be measured by the cost of mining and, li, and the limited com, uh, amount of commodity values. Talent also takes mining to find the skills needed to succeed in tennis and life. Well, your advantage, you decide what you think, but that's my view. Uh, Coach, uh, would you like to comment on that? Um, I, I did enjoy uh, your program uh, yesterday, and I also have some questions I would like to ask about that, too. But would you like to uh, tell me where I'm wrong? Well, th- thank you, John, again, for uh, having me on your program. And, uh, your analogies are very good. Um, uh, you know, there's fool's gold and real gold, isn't there? And yesterday I was talking about diamonds, rhinestones, and right. And uh, <laughs> don't take any wood nickels, was my mother saying as I used to walk out the door every day. She literally said that every day as we walked out the door. And there was there's a big message behind that. But, you know, you were talking, can I talk briefly about the tiebreaker? Not sure. Um, you know, the, the danger there, of course, and everybody I think would agree out there, is, you know, it's a slippery slope once you start abbreviating things. They uh, literally now are, they've abbreviated so many things in the uh, junior ranks that, kids go in, they don't know if they're playing a four-set, no-add, four-game set, tiebreaker for the third, uh, you know, tie, they don't know what they're playing, so I don't know why they do this and do not put a asterisk for abbreviated matches, they sure should, because they're definitely not as credible as a Grand Slam win or a two out of three set win. And uh, so, the point is, you know, there's a big correlation, too. I I sat and watched the uh, Isner, uh, what's the name, South, Afri- uh, South African guy? Uh, oh, uh, Anderson. Oh, yeah, Ke- Kevin. Yeah, Kevin Anderson. And, uh, John, I don't think there's anybody to turn that off, first of all. Now, but there's a correlation here. Do you remember that on grass, Isner had the 70 to 68 match or whatever, too. Well, you know, both of those guys, neither guys returned as good as, neither guys returned better than the other guys served. If you watch Isner's matches, he has a tremendous amount of tiebreakers that he plays. He holds serve, best serve in the world, probably. And, uh, but are the returns good? No, if his returns, if he had great returns, he would be the guy that stayed on top of the rankings for a lot of years. But his returns aren't good enough. Great. Mm-hmm. I, I love the guy. He was a college player. I love the guy. Uh, he and Stevie Johnson are the only college guys we got out there right now from America. And um, the point being, though, is those guys' returns were bad. It's that simple. John, are you getting static? I'm getting a lot of static, by the way. I'm getting a little, too. Uh, I'm also getting hard of hearing, so I don't know. I didn't know if it was me, but I am getting static, too. Okay. I was now. It's it's gone away here, but let me know, uh, you know, if, if I need to call back or something. But right now it's gone away. But I wanted to make that mention that Slippery Slope uh, I am, you know, it's more than just being a traditionalist. It's about having credible results. And a Grand Slam is the greatest test in tennis, isn't it? 
probably the French Grand Slam because it's on red clay and it's incredibly hard and it's incredibly hard to work your way through. But uh, Wimbledon's always been a different kind of pressure and a different kind of game and it favored different kinds of games. But the bottom line on the thing is those guys had that great match mainly because their returns weren't good enough. And you had Djokovic, you know, and Nadal who returned well enough. They they don't have those long matches. They Not against those guys either. But those guys serves to or both top ten in the world probably. So that has a lot to do with it. So the slippery slope there, of course, is always the dumb down. And I wanted to use an example um, of a couple things. You know, a lot of these decisions on scoring – uh, you take basketball. You were a basketball coach, high school basketball, and I have a basketball okay. background. But I absolutely do not like, I'm not going to say despise, but I do not like NBA basketball. I don't watch it anymore because the athleticism has overcome the skill set that it takes to play. Um, with, with these athletes that they have, um, it's not hard to score, so there's very little skill set. There's very little strategy. You see these athletes, and after you see the sensationalism of it, it's very boring. And I would use a comparison after you watch tennis uh, without the symmetry of the game coming into play enough. Uh, I can watch French Open all day long, but the symmetry of indoor tennis with high-tech rackets, it basically serves and nerves. Then basketball, of course, they change it to marketeers. They have the three-point play. And now a lot of teams have no set formations. They just either shoot a three or they either shoot layups, and it's it's just boring to watch. And, uh, you know, I'll give another example of over-marketing. Um, think about boxing, John. You know, if I ask out there, the listeners, if I ask a hundred of you, who is the heavyweight champion of the world right now? Most of you would do not know. I don't know. It was Klitschko a couple years ago, and nobody knows. I've asked in coaches' meetings. I was trying to make a point. Does anybody here know who the heavyweight champion of the world is? Now, we're talking from 1890 or whatever when John L. Sullivan was the champion of Bare knuckle boxing. Uh, you, if you, if you want to see something great, go to John L. Sullivan on YouTube. Bare knuckle boxing. There's a documentary on him. Back in those days when they did the bare knuckle boxing, and then it was outlawed because it was so brutal. But they would have these huge crowds of ninety thousand people come to see a bare knuckle boxing match, and they didn't have fifteen rounds. They boxed. They fought until somebody couldn't stand anymore. One of the the famous heavyweight championship boxes that he had bare-knuckle boxing was 82 rounds, John, 82 rounds. Now, but a point I wanted to make is you go there from Gentleman Jim Corbett, John L. Sullivan, Gentleman Jim Corbett, uh, you know, all the way up through, gosh, uh, Joe Lewis, oh my golly, what a great documentary on Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Floyd Patterson, Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, uh, George. And Moore, I could take uh, you, okay, I could take you to a list of even more because that was uh, and make my you make an outstanding point because today I don't know who the heavyweight champion is. Right, right. And well, I traveled not only living in Connecticut. I not only traveled to Madison Square Garden, uh, to uh, Philadelphia, to Miami, uh, to Jamaica, uh, to watch uh, championship boxing matches. I sat ringside for years until the. The drug people came in, and then uh, the, the marijuana just went overtake us. So I went into the mezzanine <laughs> section after, and then uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I see, I used to spend Wednesdays at Old Saint Nick Arena, and then Fridays at Madison Square Garden. So I agree with your point right. because I'm one of those well, people who don't know who the heavyweight champion is today. 
Well, I, I, the, but the bigger point is, as a child growing up, I wasn't a boxing fan, but I remembered a Sonny List and uh, Cassius Clay fight, the first one. It was great. And the second one I watched with my buddies. I can remember being in the seventh grade and watching that with my buddies. And it was a fake fight. You know, they, they, it was a setup. Sonny Liston took a dive. And we, it was disgraceful. We, we, were, we were seventh graders going, wow, that's disgraceful. Wow, he took a dive. And we didn't even have video replays back then, but everybody, it was the invisible punch. But, look, I, I was not a boxing fan. But I knew who Joe Lewis was, Rocky Marciano, Floyd Patterson. Now, I've got him in order. Floyd Patterson was before Sonny Liston, who was before uh, Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali. And then, of course, there was George Foreman and uh, Watts uh, from South Carolina. Watts, oh, dang it, slipping my mind. And then, of course, you had Ali coming back. And Now, here's the point. I remembered back, and I studied, I, I watched a movie. I'm not going to go too deep into this, but, John, I knew all of the boxers, just like I knew all of the basketball players, just like I knew um, when I got into tennis. Then I started, I knew all of who the Australians were, the great, whether it was Lou Holt, Roy Emerson, Rod Laver, Tony Roach. Ken Rosewall, Greg Stolle, and on and on and on, and then Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. Now, here's the point, is that what happened was the marketeers, the marketing people got a hold of boxing. And then, wait a minute, another thing, John, NASCAR. NASCAR has taken a great hit. NASCAR was doing great. It was great guns in the South. I was never a NASCAR Man. But I knew who Bobby Allison was. Shoot, I, I knew who, uh, you know, and I grew up in Indianapolis. They still have the Indianapolis 500. But the bottom line is the marketeers, they started going the way of marketing. So the slippery slope, the point I'm making is that the slippery slope is that any time you take something that is of great merit and you start trying to over-market it, and you try to start making money out of it, it basically the value of it declines because the whole objective becomes not necessarily to be a champion, but it you know it, it's basically about trying to get people to watch it. Now, the, the other well, I think that's why that, I congratulated the All England Club uh, because I I'm. Believe I, I would rather than see a tiebreaker at twelve twelve. See it continue the same way, but I also understand the marketers right or wrong. They they think they're doing the right thing too. And what I respected about the All England Club is they didn't rush into something like we did in the nineteen seventies when there wasn't well, really I, no problem at all. Wise. They sat there and they looked at all. They looked at the marketers' interest. They looked at the coaching interest. They looked at the players' interest. They're the people playing it, and many of them felt they were being taxed. And they came out with a compromise that I think still respect. Now I'm a dreamer, and I admit that. I I also am fearful, like you are, that slippery slope that. We could be going down to the six six, but I'm hoping that the USTA comes to their senses, and I think that I'm, I'm praying, maybe more than thinking, uh, that uh, Paris and uh, Australia comes to uh, the same way that the uh, Wimbledon does, and not the direction that the USTA, the US Open, has. But I'm a dreamer, and I admit it. I think I think you're dreaming there, and I'm not look, just trying to bash the USTA. I'm, everybody out there knows I'm not too fond of the bureaucracy. I love the people in the USTA, but the bureaucracy is there for one reason, to self-sustain, just to basically make money and save itself because it's such a huge bureaucracy now that it spends so much money and it has so many people employed, it's got to keep bringing the money in. And the amount of money 
and I don't, I don't want to go there because that becomes political. But here's here I wanted to make a quick point. Whenever you dump something down and you change the bar of excellence, you you you, you definitely become generic. And there are so many examples of genericism, and then it's gone. I was I had the privilege of coaching at all the Grand Slams. Only once at Wimbledon. Only once at Wimbledon. I had some Asian kids from Thailand that we went there. Well, guess what? They were junior players, and they were told for the first time they had to wear all white at Wimbledon. Had to wear all white. Now, mm-hmm. people might say, well, wow, that's sort of radical, having to wear all white. Do you know what an honor they felt? As we went out, I had to go out and buy tennis dresses for these young ladies. Actually, my little girl, 2009 from Thailand, she won the singles and doubles there. And then the other one uh, lost in the qualifying, but she's still on tour doing well. But to go out and get a white dress and get white clothes, they didn't look at it like, oh, look what we have to do. They said, no, we have to honor the traditions. We have to honor the special thing that this thing Wimbledon is. So any time that you genericize, now the U.S., to me, U.S. Open, look, it's our national championships, our grand slam, but you have the Australian, French, the Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. Of all of them, the U.S. Open is the most commercialized. It is the most Mm -hmm. commercialized. You go there, and it's New York, fast money, jet set, movie stars, rock and roll, like, and, and it's, it's just to me, there's no turning back now because they've commercialized it so much. Now, I would say Australia is probably second. It's very, very unique because it's time of the year, and it's so hot there. It's middle of the summer when you go there, and they do have the great Australians tradition and you know there's only this is really interesting there's only 20 million people in the whole country of australia now if you think about that we have many states i I don't know what florida i bet they have close to 20 million people in florida and i don't know what the population is but if you can the whole whole country of australia only have 20 million people but they've been able to continue this australian open and because of the great, great tradition, the tradition that Harry Hopman laid down, that all those great players, you know, uh, Margaret Court, Yvonne Gulagong on the women's side, but all of the great players, those tradition is why they have this great and wonderful tournament. But they, I think, are second in marketing. Uh, the, the, I love the French Open. Because of how hard it is, uh, Wimbledon is the premier or the premier. It's the Wimbledon, the grass and, and what, the way it's run, and just the mystique of everything. I mean, there's not one player in the world that doesn't play at Wimbledon that they get a bigger buzz and they are more nervous, and it's the biggest event of all the tennis. Now, I don't Paris. Masters, whatever that was, that thing that they run at Indian Wells. Uh, the Davis Cup is going to be genericized too, John. And the yeah. problem, the Davis Cup's not going to be Davis Cup anymore. It's going to be just another 10-day tournament. Guess what? Madison Avenue marketeers are going to be there trying to squeeze the most they can get out of that rock. And guess what? If the United States is not in one of the final rounds, do you really think out there in Indian Wells that they're going to draw great crowds to watch Croatia play Zimbabwe or somebody or France? There's no way. It could be Davis Cup. and Oh, no, it's just another tournament. It's another tennis tournament. But guess what? The people, it's not a slam in California. But anybody in Los Angeles will tell you it's very, very hard to promote things in Los Angeles because 
every day they've got the beach, they've got Malibu, they've got movie stars, they've got all these things. They've got swimming in the ocean, skiing in the mountains, and they've got all these things. Well, guess what? they got a tournament here. Big deal. They've already been to the circus too many times. So, John, what the point is, the slippery slope is to dump down. And you cannot, once you take away traditions, you really, really hurt your chances of success. And, and the NBA has done it to themselves. Boxing is about done. I don't care how many times they do this martial arts, more full body crowd, whatever they're doing, MMA or whatever, it's not boxing. It's still, that's not going to be 100 years from now. Somebody's just like I know John L. Sullivan 130 years later, and I was watch up watching it two weeks ago, the history of John L. Sullivan and boxing, there's no way in the world somebody 120 years from now is going to be trying to see what's going on. So anyhow, that's the slippery slope. And again, yesterday uh, our program was on Don't Take Any Wood Nickels was was the name of it. And it was about this. It was about... I enjoyed that. You probably... You're the... uh, You're the... The greatest were using uh, loaded language, and uh, I really enjoyed that show immensely. And uh, especially your advice to uh, players uh, uh, and their parents, too, seeking out tough coaches and everything. Maybe you ought to go over that. Well, to you, of course, in Florida, those are listening, and you're a coach. All I ever wanted to do was be a high school teacher and a high school basketball coach. And, of course, you're willing to give your lives to it. And you care about the te- you care about the kids. So my program yesterday was on don't take any wood nickels. And always uh, my, now, my saying has been that the world promises you buckets of rhinestones, but God gives you the chance to make one diamond with your life. And I tell my players that and they sort of go whoa whoa wait wait a minute that's what's that about and then but in a while john is like you talking about it takes time to mine gold you know but there is fool's gold and there is fake gold and with diamonds you have rhinestones and cubic zirconiums now are so so good so I, I'm going to use the analogy, if you don't mind, my PG-13 analogy. Uh, coaches out there, when I got into coaching, I was in my 30s back in the 80s, and uh, I got very disenchanted with coaching. You ever heard the saying that usually it happens in the 40s, late 40s, you climb to the top of the ladder and you find out it's leaning against the wrong house? Well, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> That's what happens with a teacher, whether Mr. Holland's opus or they call me Mr. Chips, or every coach and every teacher gets to a place near usually near ten to fifteen where you become very disenchanted and you say, What am I doing? I've thrown these years away. I certainly have not used my best years of my life to make money. I'm gonna be struggling and scrambling most of my life. Guess what? The kids don't seem to care. Guess what? These administrators, all they're trying to do is check the boxes and check the special boxes that the state is having them do and are soon becoming socialistic, state-run education if we're not careful. And, uh, boy, that's a whole different education. I've got a whole different subject. I've got a lot of friends who teach. It's interesting. I just want to go off this tangent a little bit. It's very, very interesting that they eliminate music and art and sports first. Oh, wait a minute. The passionate activities, wow. The soul-driven, the heart-driven activities where youngsters learn to put their emotions into something. They do away with music. Wow. Not enough money. Bull crap. They do away with art and drama. Bull crap. They do away with sports. Huh. Maybe they don't want vigorous sports that where you have to exude passion. Maybe it's all a mindset. Maybe it's planned 
so that everybody becomes sort of the same. Maybe that's why we're all shooting to the middle. Saying all that, well, if I could just interject for one minute, Coach, if I could just interject for one minute, I think that is one thing. But even I think if you look at the best scenario that's going, and I'm, I'm thinking you're probably on target, but let's look at the other one is the harder to measure. We are now teaching to test rather than teaching subject matter. And, of course, that's part of our problem with, Tennis, not just tennis, but all the sports. We're trying to teach for this year's team and to make parents happy or to sit there and uh, we're not trying to teach that this is something that they got to spend time with and work and the tears have to come out before they're going to get better. Their time is harder to measure, and that's the problem. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think you gave one scenario. To me, the best scenario that I gave, I don't think is is the reason. I think your scenario is probably the reason. What you said about measuring to test, if you think about it, again, you're working for success or money or materialism or something. The kids, you, you, everyone knows they're supposed to learn something, not just get test scores. But we preach a lot. I'm, I mean, I, everybody I come in contact with, team coaches that work with me, uh, players, I preach constantly work for mastery, mastery, not success, mastery, learn it. We homeschool our children, and homeschooling is either very, very good or very, very bad. I don't think there's an in-between, but my wife's a teacher, and I'm very proud to say but children hunger for knowledge. Most of my other girls do for sure. Boys coming along really, really well. But uh, my girls are eating it up with reading and those things. So I'm very, very proud. But but here is the point I wanted to make. <clears throat> Basketball that you mess up, tennis that you mess up and over genericize or you try to make an entertainment business out of an education business always what happens you end up working for success not for mastery and that does not inspire anyone it only inspires the heart when you're working for mastery so my mid-30s I am been in coaching 10 11 years very becoming very disenchanted not with my job but with so many things that are going on in you. Again, around 40, you say, I'm climbing the top of the ladder, and you maybe find out it's leaning against the wrong house, and, and guess what? You, you're you wondering, is it all worth it? Uh, and then you go through this stage of trying to put meaning with it, and just drawing a paycheck is not enough if you're a teacher. Everyone knows that. It's like trying to draw pay tech if you're a preacher it's it's not enough or a nurse or you know anything that's a service industry so that's where they're they're cutting the teacher off so I'm in my late 30s and I'm very very disenchanted I got to work for the great Harry Hoffman out of college my first job I got a call from my old college coach and his name is Larry Ware what a great call. He called me and he goes, Chuck, you want a job? Doesn't pay much, $70 a week up at All-American Sports Camp, Harry Hopman's. I go, heck yeah, I'd rather be teaching tennis and doing the stuff that you have to do for first to get out of college. So I got to work for Harry Hopman. Now, that I got a 10-week job for $70 a week, and then I got hired. I was very proud that he picked me, but for $20, I would have never gotten to work for him for a year. And I I just got to tell this quick story. But 36 teaching college kids working for Harry Hoffman at this camp in Amherst, Massachusetts. We had about 30, 35, 36 kids, 36 kids. Well, at the (laughs) middle of the third week or fourth week right in the middle it's pretty hot you're working 
nine, ten hours a day. By the way, I made seventy dollars a week, and I was okay. I was playing tennis for a living, teaching tennis. Got our, got our meals. So, Mr. Hobbin came up to me and he goes, "Chuck, old boy," he said, "I'd like for you to hit with my wife, Lucy." And I, I said, Mr. Hoffman, I'd be honored. Thank you for asking me. And I went out, and at the end of the day, my buddies were going to dinner. They sort of said, oh, you got, you got to keep working there. You got the tough job there. And, of course, climbed the fence to put the ball back on the rack of strings, and I did my best. And listen to this. I only make $70 a week, but listen to the brilliance, what this man did. And I know he did this on purpose comes up to me right afterwards, and he goes, Chuck, Chuck, oh boy. He reaches in, and he pulls out his billfold, John, and he says, look, like to give you $20. We always, listen, he flatters, we give our pros $20. And I did my Midwestern shelf, oh, shucks, Mr. Hobbin, I can't thank you for asking me. I'm so proud that you asked. Thank you, sir. I, I can't take any money. I can't. I'm just, thank you for asking me. And he had the kind of presence that I would shake. You would shake when you're around him because you knew he's such a great man. There was such a steam for such. And so I didn't take it. I was walking off. I go, God, that's so stupid. John, this is terrible. Everybody would get a kick out of this. I was going, oh, that's so stupid. Now, $20, man, that's 80 beers, quarter of beer and red solo cups, man. <laughs> you know, we're just out of college. A quarter of beer, if you all can believe that. On red solo cups, I just said, I just gave away. Oh, for one hour, I just gave away 20 bucks. Well, the next week, Mr. Hobbin did the same thing. He said, Chuckle Boy, here, hit. We hit with. I said, Mr. Hobbin, be honored to. I did the same scenario. And uh, same scenario. He comes out and flips $20 in front of me and sort of. Here, here, Chuck, take $20, $20. Folks, you got to understand, $20 back in those days, 1970, <laughs> 72, was a bunch of money. Again, it's 80 beers. And I did my Mr. Hoffman, I'm sorry, but I I'd, I'd, uh, I can't take the money. And I said, you idiot, why you didn't take the money? Take the money. And my buddies I'm rooming with, he said, oh, you're crazy. Just take the money. They've got a lot of money. And that night, I got a note on my door. It said, go see Hop. I go, oh, no, I'm going to get fired. His wife didn't like my lesson. Oh, no. I'm just shaking as I walk up to his room. And I'm, I'm just shaking. And I know I'm getting fired because that's what you did. You got a note. You didn't like the work you're doing. You got fired. I went up there and I walked in there and he said, Chuck, old boy, I want you to come work with me in New York. Work for me in New York City. I go, what? I mean, I thought I was going to get fired and he's offered me a job. And it was Port Washington Tennis Academy, 1972. John McEnroe was a 14-year-old kid. They had Peter Fleming, Barry Carrillo, Beach Carolitis, all these players, Peter Renner. They had all these players. They had 120 kids. And I go, whoa, this is a huge black door. So I said, Mr. Hoffman, can I call my dad? I called my dad. My dad said, son, you know, uh, you're not going to be a teacher? I said, well, I'd, I'd like to be a teacher, Pop, but I sort of – a lot. this man is so special. He's, he's like the basketball coaches, Pop. I said, he's like John McLeod. I had John McLeod, who coached for Phoenix Suns, for 13 years, New York Knicks, Notre Dame, Dallas Mavericks. He was my high school JV coach in 1965. Well, Hoffman was like this guy. He was special. He demanded excellence. He was so hard. And and I just said, Pop, I, I just I think I could learn a lot being around this guy. So I took a job and I got to go there for a year. And had it had I not had that job, I would have never been in tennis. Had I taken that twenty dollars, I would have never been in tennis. But the point was, is it, it was excellence was around him all the time. 
He never lowered the bar. He demanded excellence. He made you work hard. The pros, we got worked. Oh, we got worked hard. But I got room, board, and experience. And boy, did I get experience. But more than experience, I got a a lesson in hunger and seeing how excellence was formed. I found the diamond makers, and it was Mr. Harry Hopman. Now, had I worked for some smoothie who just said, make money, 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 or somebody just showboat stuff, here's the way you do things, I'd have never been in tennis. It would not have touched me to the heart. And, you know, um, of course, whatever motivates you, some people are motivated for material things, some for money, some are for, they say there's six motivational things, John. Um, You have financial reward, material reward, those two. Association, being part of something. Appreciation, just being appreciated goes a long way to your employees. And then self-improvement is a huge one. Service to others is number six. And service to others is why someone gets into teaching, why they get into coaching. But, but I wanted to say to the teachers out there, with that, I had the Hopman mentality. So I'm, I'm, let's go back to my 1980 story. So 1980, it's about 84. Four or five in there. I'd been in coaching about 10 years at Clemson. So I was really, really down in the dumps because right then the flashy stuff was taken over. Uh, all of the fancy and people had figured out how to market the tennis boom of the 1970s. The rackets had come out, the fancy playing, the academies down in Florida. Kids were going down there, and it looked flash, flash, flash. You could see right through it. There was flash and cash flying all over the place. So I was in Indianapolis in the summer on my way to Kalamazoo recruiting, and I remember I stayed at my mom and dad's, and my sister was there. Now, she's passed away, John. God bless her. She's such a wonderful, beautiful person. My sister, Claire, and I miss her every day. She is just a wonderful, wonderful person. She's married to my best friend growing up. So my sister, I, I go to her. I'm so, I'm so disappointed. I said, I've been working, working. I, I said, I wanted to be a coach because the people who inspired me more than anybody growing up were my coaches, my basketball coaches. And then I'm in tennis because of Mr. Hoffman. There's no other reason I'm in tennis, but all of these flashy guys are getting ahead. All the smoothie stuff's getting ahead. The marketing is how you get ahead. It turns, it not just turns my stomach a little bit. It just is not right. This game is so fantastic. I've gotten to travel most of the United States now again, because of this wonderful game. She said, stop, stop, Chuck, Chuck, stop, stop. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm your sister and I love you. It's very simple. She says, cream always rises, so keep doing the work. Keep doing the honorable work. But she says, crap floats first. <laughs> and, and I go, whoa. She says, but the crap always gets the flush. She <laughs> says, do what is right, work hard. Cream rises, but crap floats first. But she said, S-H something T <laughs> word. I'm not going to say that one. The crap flows first, but John, and it attracts more attention. The cream does it. The cream rises slowly. But the crap, the crap draws attention and flies, doesn't it? Flies and attention. And in the old days, it always got the flush. It always got the flush. Now, if you're slick on a computer, you can be a rhinestone and a fake, and it's everybody can look like they're great. Everybody looks great on Facebook. Everybody's a hero on Facebook. Everybody is a champion when you champion all of the weak, you weaken all of the real champions. 
and everybody can look good. Now, the problem is it's not that its marketing is all bad, but what does it do? It dilutes, pollutes, and prostitutes real achievements. It dilutes, pollutes, and prostitutes real achievements. And Coach, we our, got our sport is Coach, we have that is less great. than Coach. Let me interrupt because I want you okay. to finish up. We have about nine minutes to go, and I don't want to okay. interrupt that. The, I don't want to interrupt that the uh, end. Although I will say that you know, also on uh, Facebook and on the computers, I'm the most computer illiterate person there is. But yeah, I'm talking to you, a genius. So. There's good with computers, too. But but let me get 20 seconds in, and then I want you to close out, and I don't want to interrupt. I just want to remind everybody that next Thursday uh, I have Debbie Landon from from Texas uh, returning to the broadcast. She was the first girl that played on a boys' team in high school. She played in Europe. She played all over. And I understand she might bring a a have on there Dick Johnson, who is a Hall of Fame high school coach, and somebody I haven't seen in a few years uh, since one of the USTA meetings is uh, Ken McAllister, who's a legend in in, uh, Texas. So it might be a good show. Coach, I'm not. I'm. I'm here if you need me, but I'm not going to interrupt you. And I don't want. Uh, I want you. You're going to close out the show. And if you go over, then they <laughs> fight it with me after. But who knows? Well, but go ahead. No, John, jump, jump in and tell me if you want me to go in a different direction. But I think this is what's important to all you teachers out there, to all you coaches, parents, parents who maybe are persuaded by the slick willies out there for the flash and the cash and the, the smoothies, you know, the, uh, the rhinestones, not the diamonds. As my mother used to say, don't take any wood nickels. Every day we walked out the door. Don't take any wood nickels, Charles, she called me. Don't take any wood nickels. Well, the point is, is we, it's harder and harder now to find excellence. Because with machines, with our marketing tools, with all of the things that we have, people say, oh, my, we have so much more information that is available to us. That's true. But without the hunger of an inquisitive mind, information is just is nothing. It's nothing. And, and it's, so there's so, – so the point is, why – what should we do? Well – you know, everyone out there, you will get to a place in your life, I'm telling you, as you get older. My mother used to, she was so smart. She used to say, in your 20s, you learn, son. 30s, invest your learning. 40s, you reap the benefits. And, I, you know, that's such wisdom. But let me say this. After 60, and this is where you, John, are, you've got to give it all back. <laughs> Well, John, I'm approaching 80. I was going to say, yeah. Well, you don't have to tell anybody, John. A lot of wisdom there, a lot of, a lot of mileage. Um, but here's the point: after 60, if you don't start giving it all back, you look like a burnout rock star looking for another gig, and it's very, very sad. I've seen people after 60s, they're still chasing something that's stupid. But here's the thing. Money doesn't mean as much because our time is limited. I told my assistant today, I said, I said, look, man, he's about 28. I said, hey, in the next, within the next 20 years, man, you know, I, you'll be having to come to my funeral probably. You know, I said, look, I said, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. But but I, I want you to want you to know something that you've got to give back everything that you've you've acquired. If you don't, right. you look like a burnout rock star. Now here's the point: the one thing at this stage in life is I am seeking excellence. Find I want to be inspired. I'm seeking excellence everywhere I go, whether it's trying to go to an orchestra concert where there's great musicians, uh, trying to go to my daughter's ballet, 
trying to go to ballet. I want to be inspired. I don't want some hokey-pokey show that sort of comes in the middle. I want to see the athlete who exhausts himself in great effort trying to accomplish great and noble tasks. I want to be inspired by great music. I want to read a great book that still touches my heart deeply. Forget it on the movies. Oh, my God, just such trash out there. But the bottom line is we all want to be inspired. So the thing is, the world promises of buckets of rhinestones. We have a chance to make one diamond with our life. We need to call. We need to first of all seek out excellence. We need to reward and give accolades to those who are excellent. That Eagle Scout down the street from where you live. You know what? It's really, 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 really hard to be an Eagle Scout. And that kid is way further ahead than Billy that is a couple houses down that his parents put bumper stickers on the back of the car and say, my kid is a great kid. My kid is an honor kid, which is crap, which, you know, we're trying to make our kids always feel good. But when you when you champion the weak, you weaken the real champions. I want to be inspired by to see a coach push his kids to the point of breaking, but he knows how to she knows he or she knows how to bend them but not break them. And then when it's game time you see great excellence. I want to see the bar staying up for academics. We're only only the very, very best that with the cream is running to the front, the, the, the top, that we don't dumb our classes down to the lowest common denominator. The kids who don't want to learn should be in a holding room and just go in there and play on the Internet. Get them out of the way of the kids who are actually being excellent. I want to leave an antidote here with everybody. I want to share this. Uh, my good friend, Andy Johnson, I'm going to use him, one of the most fantastic people in the world. He got to work for uh, up there for three football coaches. He was the director of football operations at Clemson. He works for Dabble Sweeney. I don't think Sweeney would mind me saying this, but this is how great things pass around. He said, you know, up at Clemson, Dabble has this thing. He says there's four kinds of athletes. Those that have it or don't have it, those that bring it or don't bring it. He said if you have it and bring it every day, Oh, that's special. Those are the guys that become the Deshaun Watsons. Those are the guys that you put you put them under pressure. You try to shine the diamond. You try to push them the next level, the next level, the next level. Said unfortunately, you have the people that have it that don't bring it every day. Now those people, you got to get them out of there. They become the cancers. They hurt you. The people with a lot of talent that don't bring it every day. Then he said you have the people that don't have it but bring it. Keep those guys and gals around because they become great alumni, team support. They become some people you build the team with. Then if they don't have it and they don't bring it, well, those are the people that you don't even mess around with. Don't have those sluggards around. Now, there's four analogies I tell my team. If you got it, if you have it and you bring it, you're a stallion. If you have it, and you don't bring it, that's the cancer guy, the show pony. You're just showboating, show pony. If you don't have it but you bring it, you're a plow horse, and you know what? We need plow horses. If you don't have it and don't bring it, you're a donkey. <laughs> so I tell the guys this, but here's the point. In education in the United States of America, we're dumbing down to the lowest common denominator, and we're lowing down. We're trying to get stallions in there with donkeys, all the, and when you run the stallion with the donkey, it's not that the donkey will ever get better, better. The stallion will slow down. You've got to let the stallions run to the front of the pack. I saw that with Harry Hopman. He had a way of pushing the best out of the best. And those that weren't the best, if they didn't bring everything, they had to go home. They didn't hang around Harry Hopman because his standards were so high. Then, John... The ones that didn't have it but brought it every day, my golly, I, that's, I think, someone like me getting into tennis, but I've been teaching my whole life. 
tennis. I wasn't good enough to play pro tennis. I was I was I played college. I was number three on my team. That's fine, but I wasn't good. I wasn't good enough. So the point is, maybe I'm that plow horse, but you don't let the donkeys stay in the same pen with the stallions. Nothing good happens. And with that, the world promises us buckets of rhinestones, but God gives us a chance to make one diamond with our lives. Folks, try to make diamonds. Coach, thank you. We just uh, the hour. We never have enough time when we're together. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.